Hello. I'm Chris Latour, a health services researcher at the VA Portland Healthcare System and co-director of our local lung cancer screening program. On behalf of the Thoracic Oncology Assembly at the American Thoracic Society, I'm very excited to share this series of podcasts with you. I think it will be both inter- educational and entertaining. I'm joined by Dr. Patricia Rivera, Professor of Medicine at the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and Dr. Renda Wiener, an investigator at the VA HSRD Center for Healthcare Organization and Implementation Research, as well as an assistant professor at the Boston University School of Medicine. We recently sat down to discuss many aspects of implementing lung cancer screening programs. There are still many unanswered questions that, while we're hopeful will be addressed with future research, we can't wait to definitively answer before giving screening our best shot. In this series of podcasts, we discuss what we know, what we're doing, and what we hope to know in the future. Inspired by soap operas and NPR's recent serial podcasts, we're going to give you the lung cancer screening implementation story over a series of podcasts. Every couple weeks or so, we'll release a new edition. Unfortunately, there won't be cases of selective amnesia, total face change operations, or surprise gotcha moments. But I can promise you, you'll learn something about lung cancer screening you didn't know before. Or at least I did. Our first episode begins with doctors Rivera and Wiener discussing who should and shouldn't get screened. Let's get started. Uh, what criteria are you using for screening and why? Uh, I am using the uh, USPSTF um, guidelines, patients between the ages of 55 and 80 with 30-pack years or greater and who have quit within 15 years. Having said that, um, because Medicare um, has approved screening for patients up to the age of 77, I do, in my shared decision discussion with patients, inform them that um, that may be an issue in terms of reimbursement if they're between the ages of 77 and 80. Um, I'm screening patients who do not have competing comorbidities, patients who are uh, willing to undergo uh, therapy if lung cancer is uh, diagnosed. That's great. When, Renda, I guess the follow-up question is that is what do you do um, when a patient is referred um, to a screening program but doesn't meet those criteria that Patricia uses? So actually, this is a this is a, a an issue that just came up for us um, at the program that I'm involved with at Boston Medical Center. So um, the way that it works there is that the ordering provider. Um, goes through a a checklist of eligibility criteria um, in the electronic medical record and, um, you know, has to check off whether or not the patient has the appropriate age and pack years of smoking and is asymptomatic and doesn't have competing uh, comorbidities that um, would limit their life expectancy or, uh, or their ability to tolerate surgical resection. But what we found, and then after that, so, you know, the ordering provider would do that, and then the patient would go directly to screening if the order was completed. Um, but what we found, actually, in reviewing our um, quality data from the program was that a lot of patients actually were not meeting eligibility criteria, um, despite those prompts um, as part of the order. And the main thing that we found was an issue was um, patients who had symptoms being um, put in for a screening CT. So now we're implementing a process where our uh, screening coordinator, who's a nurse, is going to call the patients in advance of the CT to confirm eligibility criteria and specifically, you know, ask about uh, possible symptoms. Gotcha. 
And how do you determine if they're uh, safe to have surgery, if their comorbidities are sort of at a level that's, that's okay to tolerate a surgical resection? Well, that is a great question. And um, unfortunately, I don't think we really have a uh, any kind of standardized way that we're approaching that at this point. I think um, clinicians are doing it on sort of a case-by-case basis or, you know, just... Um, I don't know. We haven't implemented any, any, any formal system for that. I don't know. Patricia, do you have thoughts on how you guys are doing it at UNC? So uh, we have a very similar system um, where we have an EPIC uh, prompt best uh, practice alert for screening that has all of the uh, elements that you described so that the referring physician the requesting physician has to um, submit those. I agree with uh, with Renda that um, patients who are symptomatic are undergoing screening CTs. Um, and we've implemented the same process where in our screening clinic, when patient is referred to us, we call them. Uh, we have clinic on a Monday. We usually call patients that Thursday or Friday to ensure that they're not having any respiratory symptoms. Um, and if they are, then we get back to the referring physician and postpone the screening clinic um, visit. Um, I, when I see patients in the screening clinic, I am reviewing, obviously, through the uh, medical chart, pulmonary function data, if available, and underlying cardiac uh, history uh, to ascertain, at least uh, to the best of my ability in a clinic visit, um, what their um, comorbidities are. Um, and I have had two patients with pretty severe obstructive airways disease on significant supplemental oxygen who were referred for screening. Um, and after shared decision-making, decisions made not to proceed with screening in those patients. Um, but often it's a lot of, um, you know, it's not an official visit for a, a pulmonary consult, but you're, you're essentially doing that when you have patients who have underlying COPD or cardiac disease. Yeah. One thing we are very... not... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, we are not getting pulmonary function testing uh, as part of our screening clinic visit. Um, we, that was not something that the, the, the institution agreed on, but a lot of these patients do have data available that can be reviewed. I think that's very interesting, and I think one of the things that I've um, heard as I've you know, gone to meetings and that sort of thing is that with the increasing use of SBRT, that maybe we don't need to worry about the comorbidity factor as much as a uh, as an exclusion to getting screened. Um, now that we have you know maybe a therapy that's uh, rivaling the effectiveness of surgical resection for early stage uh, lung cancer, and so I'm just curious um, if you think that the eligibility criteria uh, should should be changed to allow people actually with severe comorbidities to still get screened as long as they could still tolerate some sort of curative therapy? I struggle with that um, because I agree and I disagree. Um, I do think that SBRT is a a good option for patients who would not have otherwise been able to tolerate even a thoracoscopic wedge resection. Um, What I struggle with are um, that works really well in patients who are found to have peripheral lesions that may be accessible um, by percutaneous needle with, with at least in some patients with low risk, we do SPRT with fiducial, so you always have to think about a procedure to biopsy, diagnose you're dealing with cancer, and then place a fiducial. 
um, it has become problematic in the few patients who have undergone screening with pretty serious obstructive airways disease, diffuse emphysema with central lesions that are then much more challenging to get to even um, so then you're, you're thinking about, you know, you're talking about a navigational bronchoscopy and the risk of pneumothorax and then putting in a fiducial and getting to a lesion that you may not be able to adequately uh, sample. Um, so I think that's a, a big challenge. Um, on the one hand, I do think we have a modality that has been shown to be um, just as good as surgery in terms of local recurrence and three-year survival for patients who cannot undergo surgery but I'm not sure that all patients are able to undergo the diagnostic procedures that um, need to be done before SBRT and or fiducial placement um, that is at least required in some places for SBRT. So I think it still remains a challenge um, for undergoing diagnostic procedures. Yeah, I completely agree yeah. with that. Yeah, completely agree. I think... Um, at this point, I would say I would not favor screening um, those patients who cannot tolerate um, surgery, even though SBRT is a potential option, um, because of the reasons that Patricia listed. I think the, the risk of complications um, from the diagnostic workup and treatment is, is still high, um, and there's potential to do harm to those patients. And, and we, One thing I mean, too, you've shown in your paper that the, the risk of, of complications, it's high, much higher in these mm-hmm. patients with underlying right. edema. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, think, I think the other thing is these folks um, often having those types of comorbidities that are uh, going to make it so that a person's not eligible for surgical resection are also associated with a pretty high competing mortality. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. just wondering, um, Brenda, maybe I'll start with you, if you any other uh, models to sort of estimate somebody's competing mortality and how you, mm-hmm. and how you, and how you look at that issue in, in terms of screening? Yeah, that's another great question, Chris, and something that I think, um, you know, talking to colleagues around the country as well as locally, I think that's a big issue that people are struggling with um, because I don't think we've come up with a good way to, um, to estimate what... Um, well, I mean, I suppose there are models out there, but, you know, I think most clinicians are not that um, familiar with how to, um, how to estimate what somebody's expected life expectancy is and whether screening would be worthwhile. I think it's just not, you know, high on the list of things that the ordering clinicians um, are thinking about when they're ordering screening tests. Um, and certainly that's been shown to be a problem in all types of cancer screening. Um, and I think we're struggling with it in lung cancer screening as well. Um, we are not in our program using stand- in any standardized way other um, risk assessment tools. Um, Patricia and I talked about this recently, and I think you are using some, aren't you, Patricia? I use the um, cardiovascular risk prediction model um, so that estimates the patient's risk of having a stroke or a significant cardiac event over the next 10 years, plugging in for, um, I think, uh, hypertension, um, known coronary artery disease, hypercholesterolemia. Um, and I think it also includes age and race, if I'm not mistaken, um, and maybe diabetes. I can't remember. Um, uh, but I know the big ones are age, race, and uh, hypertension and cholesterol. Um, 
And, and I use information, for example, uh, recently um, an echocardiogram in a patient with an EF of 15%. I mean, you know, without the need of a, a, a risk uh, model, I can say to a patient, you know, you have severe advanced cardiac disease. You are not mm-hmm. a transplant, cardiac transplant candidate. Um, so I think it requires the clinician and that's why I think these screening clinics as they build up are going to become much more complex in terms of the the decisions to dig into um, to the history and, you know, look up things like an echocardiogram or a cardiac stress test or a pulmonary function test or a cardiopulmonary exercise study that give us better physiologic assessment of that patient. Um, so the, the one I use is just the, the, the model that predicts, you know, stroke and, and coronary artery disease risk in the, or MI risk, I think, in the next uh, 10 years. Um, but it's, it's, uh, um, it's not easy. <laughs> um, yeah. no, it's I not. often <clears throat> wonder if, um, and I think this is what you and I had talked about, Renda, you know, incorporating uh, some of these other uh, models um, for risk into the current um, risk prediction models for um, lung cancer risk and, and when you detect a nodule, the, you know, but primarily for lung cancer risk so you can assess whether or not a patient um, should be screened. But, but if you could incorporate in those models risk models for comorbidities, um, I know that sounds like a lot in a model, would that be a, a better, um, more comprehensive way to assess the patient who may or may not be a candidate for screening. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you found our first podcast as educational and scintillating as I did. If you're interested in using Dr. Rivera's risk prediction to help calculate a patient's competing risk of mortality, it's at www.cvdrisk.nhlbi.nih.gov. Stay tuned for our next podcast. We'll continue our discussion about who should and shouldn't be screened. And you'll hear Dr. Wiener try to start an argument when she says, I both agree and disagree with the comments that Patricia just made. Until next time.